turn in your Bibles to Psalm 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab a blue Bible under the chairs in front of you. You can find Psalm 5 on page 384. I'll be reading there in a minute. The worship leader in the sanctuary, microphone positioned inches from his lips, guitar on his hip, pick between his fingers, decided to exhort the congregation before they sang the next song. He had on that plastic Christian smile that could only mean everything was right in the world. And his exhortation went like this, I want you to sing like you mean it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's no room for lack of faith, for a sad face, for a voiceless heart. Let's worship Jesus. And instantly, the vast majority of the congregation got the unspoken message. We're supposed to fake our way through the service. We're supposed to sweep under the rug the reality of brokenness and dysfunction and pain. Now, obviously, I'm not speaking of Daniel and his guitar or uh, Erica and Steve or anyone else on our worship team. But I wonder if some of you might say from past experiences that that sounds familiar. The Psalms, in great contrast, the divine songbook God has given to his church, the Psalms guide our worship in a very different way. We're calling the summer series a duet between heaven and earth because there are two directions of singing going on, two-way traffic, if you will. The first is this, as Lord and King, God is worthy of our songs of praise, of our adoration, of our worship. Think of a birthday party. You sing to the birthday girl to celebrate her. Think of a a football game in some Latin country. They they tend to be especially good at this, right? They are chanting in unison out of devotion to their team. The crowd singing in that direction. But secondly, the other direction, Jesus God the Son is not a king like every other king. He is the suffering servant. He has not stayed high and above, removed from his people like the gods of the Greek pantheon. He has come down, condescended, walked among us, serving us in humility. And as the suffering servant, he sings songs of delight over his bride, whom he has come to redeem by his own blood. The Psalms invite us to sing to God and to hear his voice in response. And that two-way communication, the idea of a duet, um, also captures what's behind all of Scripture. This is the revelation of God speaking to his people, and that revelation guides our proper response to him. Otherwise, we would have no idea who he is and how we are to relate to him. I played the violin as a child, not quite like Steve Chan can, but I uh, practiced long enough and played long enough that I, I know these simple principles. Before you play, you have to tune like any stringed instrument. And I can still remember the G, D, A, and E and the up and down whine of the t- note as I turn the pegs. 
if any string is off, nothing will sound right. Even if you're playing a Stradivarius with its master craftsmanship. Because only tuned instruments achieved their designed potential. And that's uh, how I want us to look at these psalms with that picture in mind that our hearts need to be tuned in order to achieve this harmony and beauty and fulfillment that we tend to be chasing. Our hearts are out of tune because they're so often calibrated to the values of the world. They're so often um, allured by God's substitutes, what the Bible calls idols of the heart, when they are designed, our hearts are, to be tuned to God himself and to his promises. How do we get back in tune? How do we align our lives with his perfect will? We look to the songbook and prayer book of the Bible that God has given to his church that reveals his heart, the heart by which every other heart needs to be calibrated in order to be fulfilled. Let's read Psalm 5. Listen carefully. These are God's words. For the director of music, for flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this song, this poem. Thank you that we know that in David's life, everything was not peachy. And that in the midst of struggle and pain, we too can sing a song, not because all circumstances have aligned the way we'd like, but because we worship and serve a God who will make all things new and set all things right. Give us that faith to trust in that truth that this psalm and many others reveals to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Agonizing in prayer. How many of you would agree that the word agonizing fits with the word prayer? It shouldn't be, should it? It should feel more natural for the children of God to speak to our Heavenly Father, to simply communicate, to open our, uh, our mouths and, and speak from our hearts. But prayer doesn't come naturally. It doesn't flow easily. And even as that 
real truth, that real description of our prayer lives shouldn't make sense, uh, at the same time, we shouldn't rest content with that typical reality. The British preacher Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century wrote this, There may be prevailing intercession where there are no words, and alas, there may be words where there is no true supplication. He's saying there might be prayer without words, but there also might be many words when you're really not even praying. Let us cultivate the spirit of prayer, which is even better than the habit of prayer. There may be seeming prayer on the outside where there is little devotion. We should begin to pray before we kneel down, and we should not cease when we rise up. Psalm 5 teaches us something about the spirit of prayer, something I think is far more valuable to the follower of Jesus Christ than a lesson on the mechanics of prayer. Verse 1, David says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. That word for sighing can mean groaning or murmuring. What does that communicate? A loud, deep sigh. It could communicate boredom, frustration, uh, a person thinking, I don't know where to go from here. I don't have any answers. I'm at a dead end. I'm at a loss. I'm, I'm weary from life, not just from what just happened, but because it's the same old. It's yet another blow, a body blow. Why does this wordless act, sighing, have central significance to the act of prayer? We need to keep reading. Verse 2, listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. You, You cry out for help when you're in desperate need, don't you? Otherwise, you're, you're being a little overdramatic. You're exaggerating. You, you're going to cry wolf, and people aren't going to pay attention to you. When you cry out, you're desperate. You're in dire circumstances. And we could guess, uh, not, not guess, reasonably assume that Psalms 4 and 5 are written in the same time frame as Psalm 3. And the superscription, which is considered by many scholars part of the inspired text, the, the little words up above that I read, Uh, Psalm 3 says, a psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. And those were desperate times. Those were sighing, heavy days in David's life because his son Absalom had seized the throne of Israel. And what happens, especially in ancient times, when a new king succeeds to the throne? First thing he does is he kills the old king and all of his children and all of his subjects clears the way. No ambiguity. Who's in charge? David was fleeing from his own son. Even deeper heartache than losing the kingship. And all of the chaos and wickedness surrounding David easily explain a lot of sighing, a lot of crying out to the Lord, a lot of wondering, what in the world do I do now? How much do you sigh in prayer? I'm very grateful for the real prayer that Simone led us in because I I detected some sighing on her part. I I did a good bit of sighing this week in prayer after coming across the Planned Parenthood video. I know many of you saw 
many of you posted things on Facebook. And I have some deeper thoughts that I'd like to share this week via email. But for this morning, let me just say this. And I'm sorry if you don't know the context. Um, as I um, shared in my Facebook post, I do recommend that you take the time to watch the video, as painful as it is, because I do think the people of God need to face head-on the things of this world that do cause us to sigh. But what I want to just briefly share this morning is, is this. <clears throat> Whether they're illegally selling body parts or legally donating to researchers. Whether or not the investigative undercover operatives unfairly edited the video to make it look like a sales transaction or a sales pitch or not, <clears throat> there is so much undeniable reality that we can't avoid, that is there at face value, that should lead people, especially the people of God who are shaped by the truth of God, to deeply sigh, to cry out to God, to plead before His throne that He would respond in His sovereign mercy and defend the most defenseless, the unborn, and to bring to justice those who would traffic in this area. The callous and casual business talk of a doctor about baby parts, hearts and livers and lungs, and people are really into liver these days. Did you know that? People want liver for whatever reason. She doesn't care. And the calvarium, can't even call it a head, because the horror of it all is too obvious. The calvarium needs to be protected because the brain is the prize donation to whoever wants to do whatever with these parts. And how you crush a head or crush the torso above and below because the really valuable stuff you want to preserve intact for the people who are flipping through a catalog paying $30 to $100 for these baby parts. It's devastating. The baby's not wanted, but his or her parts are. And the people of God need to sigh deeply. We need to cry out to the Lord like David in desperation, not because this is a removed reality that um, politically we should get involved in. No, th this is about the image of God creating people in His image, and it is wrong. And we need to mourn, and we need to ask the Lord to right this wrong, to defend the defenseless, and to show us what we should do to, to participate with him in his work of salvation and justice. David goes on in verse 3. He says, In the morning I lay my requests before you. I set them in order, is the sense of this word. It's a word that shows up in Leviticus chapter 1 to describe the priests at the tabernacle or the temple uh, in, in the future, arranging the wood and the animal sacrifice on the altar. There's care and attention. There's order. There's a right way to do this. And, and, and this is the word that David uses when he says, I lay my request before you in the morning, God. We, we need to remember that the effectiveness of prayer is not measured by Christian lingo, let alone babbling drivel, if I can call it that. 
Thank you, Jesus. Be with us this morning. Bless John, Lord. Be with him. Give him your anointing. Thank you, Lord God, Jesus, Father God, Lord. Sometimes we resort to that stuff, don't we? It bears no resemblance to the biblical prayers recorded for us. And look, some of you might say, I don't know how to pray, and that's okay. You know, we would never criticize a two-year-old for getting words wrong or pronouncing them um, backwards or confusing them or, or, or saying things funny like someone just learning the language, which is exactly what they're doing. It would never get anybody's case. But if you're a two-year-old prayer, don't be content with that stage of immaturity. It's okay for now. But if 10 years go and you're following after Jesus and you're still praying like a two-year-old, something's lacking. Aim for maturity. And the divine prayer book and songbook of the, of the Bible is a, a great source to learn how to pray. That's why I'm calling this sermon Lessons in Prayer. Secondly, there, there's a link between ritual sacrifice and prayer. So it's not a coincidence that Leviticus 1 talks about the priests, and David is using this word specifically when he says, I lay my requests before you. The, the temple was the place where God met with his people. But the problem was that sin prevented any human beings from approaching a holy God, from drawing near to him. The solution was that the life of an acceptable substitute was required to atone for sin. So how do we draw near to God in the intimacy of prayer? Through the same means, through an acceptable substitute. We no longer need to lay out or prepare the wood or the lamb because there's no longer any need for sacrifice, Hebrews tells us, because Jesus was the ultimate and final sacrifice. We lay out our confident prayer as David did on the basis of Hebrews chapter 10, which says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the inner sanctuary of the temple, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Whether you are priests at the tabernacle or later the temple after David, laying out the wood and the lamb so that you could draw near to God, or whether you are a New Testament Christian following after Jesus, who is the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you draw near to God because an acceptable sacrifice has bridged this gap between holiness and sin, laying out our requests. How can we do that? Because Jesus has made it possible. Secondly, we need to improve our prayer aim. There's an interesting transition in verses 4 through 6. David makes statements about God's character, which enable him to make bold claims in his prayer, make bold requests, even demands of God, as insolent as that might sound. If there's a prayer lesson principle here, it's this. Know your God. When I was a junior in college, I started spending a lot more time in the career placement center. 
and I can still remember walking into the building and finding down the corridors this wall with mail slots labeled by companies who are recruiting on campus. And in the old days, you'd go to Kinko's with your floppy disk because that had your resume on it, and you'd pick out the linen paper, pay a little bit extra with the matching envelopes and get it laser printed because you really wanted this job. And because you paid for every single copy after painstakingly word processing it, and the fantasy Star Trek idea of sending things like resumes through cyberspace hadn't been invented yet, I'm dating myself, you'd go back to the career placement center and pick and choose which companies were worth you dropping your resume. That's literally what we called it, resume drop, because you'd stick your envelope through the mail slot for McKinsey and Company, dreaming that they might return your phone call. And if you got the interview, you'd then go to the library and you'd find the piece of furniture with the little drawers called card catalogs. Kids, you can learn about these in museums. Um, and you need to know your alphabet really well without singing, lest you embarrass yourself at college, because that was the only way you'd find something filed in the little drawer called the card catalog. Why would you, why would you be looking in there? Because when you show up for that interview, you want to impress that interviewing manager that you know something about the company. You know, what's this job about? I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, no, you walk in there having read the annual report, knowing the industry, the market challenges, the key products for the company, the competitors, in order to impress the interviewing manager that you know something about the company and you know why you want this job. David has done his homework. He knows his God to whom he makes these bold Requests, not wishful thinking like a college kid hoping for a job. Bold requests that sound like demands. He knows his God because he's been walking with God in a relationship of faith. He knows his character. And on the basis of knowing God's character, he says, act like you have revealed yourself to be. Because he knows God is perfectly consistent. Keep the promises you have spoken to your people because he knows God is perfectly faithful. And on the basis of God's internal consistency of character, holiness, goodness, faithfulness, David says, you have to do these things. And he's right. If you want to improve your prayer aim, you need to know the God to whom you pray. You need to read your Bible. Verses 7 and 8 are the heart of Psalm 5. Start with verse 8. And, and this is the key request slash demand that David makes in his prayer. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. And then there's a head scratcher, a little bit at least, because of my enemies. Lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Why does he say that? Why does David's desire to follow the right path, the straight path, have anything to do with his enemies? I think David has insight into his own heart that is important for us to follow on. His enemies, he realizes, are not all that different from him on the inside. Despite their wickedness, despite their animosity, despite the wrongness of what they've done to him, 
they very well could lead him astray. John started the service talking about um, bitterness towards somebody who lies about you. And, and isn't it easy for us to let someone else's sin cultivate new sin in us in response? I think David knows something about his own heart from walking in a relationship of faith with God. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians uh, 6, verse 1. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Why does Paul say that? Because the helper is never above needing help him or herself. Restore the brother or sister. Speak truth. Get involved, but be careful, lest you yourself may be tempted. I think David knows this. The one on the right path is not immune to veering off course at a moment's notice. The New Testament match to this is pretty familiar to us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And it's a proper translation also to say, deliver us from the evil one referring to Satan. Lead us not into temptation. I know my heart, Lord, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. I'm not under any illusion that I can't go down the same path that my wicked enemies are currently on. So maybe this is part of David's thinking as he prays. God, in the midst of the chaotic evil all around me, let my prayer not be a self-righteous prayer that looks down on the evildoers. Let my prayer be simply that you would make straight your way before me, leading me in your righteousness. We need to plead for justice to come. We need to plead that God would right every wrong, but with what attitude? If, if it's even tinged with anger and resentment and bitterness and rage and vengeance or disgust, those are signs that your heart is not properly tuned, that you're filled with a self-sourced, self-originating, self-generating righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. And instead, you and I need to see that we have no righteousness and that as sinners, even if we're not as wicked as those people, we still desperately need God's righteousness. Verse 7, David says, But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. He doesn't say, But I, by my great wisdom, will come into your house. He doesn't say, But I, by my religious mastery of the American gospel ninja obstacle course, I figured out everything, will come into your house. He says, but I by your great mercy. Because otherwise, it, it sounds really arrogant. Uh, up in verse 4, he had said, um, the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. Uh, for with you, the wicked cannot dwell. But I, I can come into your house. It, but I sounds arrogant. And that's why it's so important that David says, by your great mercy. As Paul writes to Titus, not because of anything we have done, but because of your great mercy, Lord God. It's the only way this is possible. The word mercy is the Hebrew word chesed. 
you need a little crud to say it properly, chesed, uh, by your great mercy. It's God's covenant faithfulness. It's his steadfast love. The NIV, I think appropriately, decides to translate it mercy because steadfast love and God's faithfulness to his covenant promises have to include an element of mercy, perhaps a primary ingredient of mercy, because how else could God steadfastly, consistently, faithfully love sinners who have rebelled against him unless he has solved that dilemma by extending mercy, by pouring out his wrath upon the Son, Jesus, instead of the believer in Jesus? Lastly, waiting for prayer's answer. The only way David can trust God with an expectant faith, verse 3, is the, the only basis is that God is just and righteous, that he will set right every wrong, that he will bring justice to all evildoers, that he will be a refuge for all who trust in him. Verse 3 has its basis in the reality of verses 11 and 12. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. You might not believe that. And as a pastor, I would simply plead with you, you need to read more Bible. You need to flip pages and find page after page, verse after verse, displaying with perfect consistency the faithful ways of God. His perfect righteousness. He does right by His perfect standard. Not always according to what we can understand, but you'll see this record and your lack of ability to trust that God really is good and blessing the righteous and surrounds them with favor. You'll begin to believe because the evidence is laid out. There's a part of the psalm that, that bothers people. It's a good bit of the psalm. Verses 4 through 6, verses 9 and 10. They're pretty harsh. We, we find uh, phrases like this, God, you destroy those who tell lies. God, uh, their throat is an open grave. Banish them. And by the way, I think as New Testament believers, we need to be careful about just taking these inspired prayers of David, for example, and just repeating them and owning them because um, it's very difficult to pray that kind of prayer without adding your own sin. Attitude, vengeance, get back at them, God. We, we know this is true, and we have to carefully pray these kinds of prayers. But, but the hope and security and comfort that we see and read in verse 11 um, it requires the stark reality of verse 10. Declare them guilty. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Divine justice, you know, the consequences falling upon themselves, you know, getting what they deserve. Banish them. The comfort and security and peace of verse 11 requires the reality of verse 10. What do I mean by that? Just a month ago, for about a three-week stretch, people in upstate New York and parts of Vermont uh, were living on edge because th uh, two escaped killers were on the loose. Remember that? They couldn't live their lives normally. They couldn't just pretend that one of these guys might not pop out of the woods, woods everywhere, and carjack them, kidnap a child, um, 
assault someone in their home. Nothing was normal until a federal agent shot the first guy and a police officer apprehended the second. And then what happened? Instantly, life can begin to go back to normal. Let our guard down. Come outside, chat with the neighbors, invite the kids to play. Security and peace and comfort can only come when wickedness is restrained, when justice is enacted. You say, but what about the thousands of military recruitment centers? How do those people go to work and, and experience any measure of comfort and peace without snipers on the roofs of thousands of military recruitment centers around the country, which is impossible? It's not feasible, personnel or cost-wise, let alone philosophically. How do they uh, restrain evil that they can't see, that they can't predict? Here's the sober truth alongside the confident hope. Until the king comes back, there can't be real and lasting peace. You and I might hit by, get hit by a truck on the way home. A lone wolf might come to Teaneck, not just Chattanooga. We can't live in perfect peace that nothing will ever assail us. No harm will come to us. And until the king comes, we work for, we pray for glimpses of that peace that we long for, but this kind of prayer won't be fully answered until the last day. Listen to Paul write in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. People in the first century saying, yeah, we need that. Thank you, Jesus. Paul says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Oh, <laughs> it's a promise that awaits a day to come. Listen to another psalm that describes the coming of the king. Let the sea resound and everything in it, Psalm 98, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Don't miss the familiar sounding words of a psalm. What gives all of creation, inanimate creation even, cause for joyous celebration in worship. It's the reality that the king has come and brought judgment because peace and security and comfort, verse 11, can only ever come when the reality of verse 10 is finally with us. God bringing rightness, justice, setting all uh, wrongs, correcting every wrong. The psalm doesn't show us this detail, but we know it from the rest of Scripture, that the divine justice of the Father is rightly aimed at every one of our sinful hearts, that judgment is deserved by every single person who has ever walked the face of this earth except for one, the ultimate son of David, the true king of Israel, Jesus himself. And mercy has said, is ultimately found. It, it, it reaches its climax when the justice and rightness of God upon sin is poured out 
not on the believer in Jesus, who deserves it, but on the Son himself on the cross, who deserved none of it. And that exchange enables us to experience one day the reality of verses 11 and 12. In your agonizing prayer, in your dire life circumstances, in your search for peace, the only one in whom you can take refuge is Jesus. He is the reason that even in the midst of burdens of real life, we can still sing this song accompanied by flutes. Not in pretense that everything is awesome, like Josh said last week, but in faith that the King is coming again. Let's pray with faith. Lord, give us that kind of expectancy as we pray in agony, as we cry out to you on behalf of everything that is wrong with this world, which includes our own hearts. And let us look with anticipation for that day when Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Lord, what a day that will be. Until then, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would use us to accomplish your work. We pray that you would give us glimpses of peace and righteousness and justice. For we ask it in the name of the Son of David himself, Jesus.